I got very, very clear at some point that there is so much to do and that I was wasting so much of my time and my effort at the level of doing things that were useful and ineffective that I just needed to stop and look and say, reprioritize and find out what's vital, what's important, what's useful. And I created a rule for myself that all there was to do was to do the vitals. When you get to a point where you're looking at your behaviors and your actions and you are restricting them to doing nothing but that which is vital, things get real simple. Welcome to the Thought Leader Revolution with Nikki Ballou and Michael Palmer. Join the revolution. There's never been a better time in history to speak your truth, find your freedom, and make your fortune. Each week, we interview the world's top thought leaders and learn the secrets of how they built a six to seven figure practice. This episode has been brought to you by eCircleAcademy.com, the proven system to add six to seven figures a year to your thought leader practice. Welcome to another exciting episode of the podcast, The Thought Leader Revolution. I'm your co-host, Nikki Ballou. I'm your other co-host, Michael Palmer. And boy, do we have an amazing, exciting episode lined up for you today. This man is one of my thought leader heroes. He is the best-selling author of The Coaching Revolution, as well as the best-selling co-author of the number one New York Times best-selling book, Tribal Leadership. He has been uh, the founder of an incredible organization called One Million Acts of Innovation. He's the founding partner uh, and CEO of an organization called Cultural Architecture. He was also founding partner and president of CultureSync. He is the one, the only, the legendary John King. Welcome to the show, John. <laughs> I don't know how <laughs> I can I, I can uh, respond to that or even live up to it. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Michael uh, and Nikki. Just thank you very much. For, uh, I am I am honored and I and I, I consider it a privilege to be here with you today. Thank you so much, John. Our listener is listening to this podcast because they want to learn from you. What are your secrets? What are your hacks? What are the ways in which you've been able to develop such incredible thought leadership and turn it into a commercially successful practice? They want to know your backstory. Tell us, share that with us. Well, I'm happy to share my backstory, although I don't know that it's replicable, but I think that's probably true for everybody who does something interesting with their lives is that at certain points there are complete disconnects and it doesn't feel like there's a transition and then they figure out how to get themselves going again. Uh, I was just counting the other day, Nikki, that I'm now on my fifth career and, and really considering launching the next thing for me. But I started out, I don't know if your your listeners know, but I started out in show business way, 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 way back when, when Jesus was a tiny baby. Uh, <laughs> My sister and I were the national ballroom champions. So imagine what a what a strange dance it is to go from being a competitive ballroom dancer, then then had a big career teaching people, and then stopped that. Uh, uh, went into the army, came out of the army, and then went to 
Hollywood with my wife and my daughter and uh, had a career for about 17 years uh, in television and on Broadway and uh, in movies, both my wife and I, as dancers, as professional dancers. And then uh, retired, you know, when you're a dancer, it's like any form of athletics. You retire the day that you go over the hill. And the day I went over the hill was a big day for me. So I retired from that, uh, not happy about it at all. In fact, really sad. Did not know what to do with myself for actually several years. I kind of drifted around and, you know, tried to figure it out. Knew that I needed to kind of get myself going. I was young. And I stumbled into a program. My girlfriend at the time actually introduced me to a transformational program. I got involved. And when I took the program, I saw that if I started assisting and got my attention off of me and my pitiful little story, that maybe I could be of some value to other people. And it was somewhere around this time in my life that I realized that whatever I had thought my life was about, and mostly it was about winning and being better than you, it turned out that that was really, truly hollow for me. And I realized that my, my life really was about being of service to people and contributing where I could. And so I got trained. I was taken under the wings of, of several really wonderful teachers and mentors. And I began leading seminars and programs for a company that does transformational work. And I did that for about 15 or 18 years. And then in the course of that, I met a guy who was an associate professor at the University of Southern California, and he put a seed into my brain that I could actually coach people and be a consultant. So with him, his name is Dave Logan, we wrote a book together called The Coaching Revolution, and later on we wrote The Tribal Leadership. Uh, book, but we did a lot of coaching and consulting and training and teaching, uh, not only at the University of Southern California. I was there for about 13 years uh, in the Marshall School of Business and a couple of other colleges, but also, you know, with uh, executive clients and executive coaching. And for me, it turned out to be an awful lot of work and gaining knowledge in the world of commercial real estate and in the financial services companies and and so on like that. So that's what I did. Uh, And uh, I was fortunate. I was really blessed and I was really fortunate that uh, it worked out and uh, people liked my way of looking at things. Now, my way of looking at things has nothing to do with what was going on in school because I didn't go to school. I didn't go to university. I was a dancer. And so the truth is that everything that I learned about everything that I do, I learned in my time and my apprenticeship and my journeyman period when I was in show business, although it was in major league level of showbiz, but everything I learned about partnering, everything I learned about business, everything I learned really about how people interact and relate point to point in an environment that is highly competitive and in an environment where people are very bright and very, very, very intentional and committed. 
that's where I learned everything I needed to learn. And then after that, it was a matter of, okay, how can I take this and share it with people given that I'm a dancer? And the, the, the consideration about being a dancer is when you're a dancer, you're a mute. You make figures and shapes in the air, and that's your communication. So I had to learn how to talk had to learn how to uh, kind of get it across the board. And the only thing that helped me was my background in show business, which taught me to get it out in a way that is simple, that is direct, that is useful for people, and hopefully is somewhat entertaining. So uh, there you go. Backstory, uh, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a re, uh, retreaded gypsy dancer. A retreaded gypsy dancer, I love it. That's fascinating. John, we've identified four key elements to thought leadership. Let me go through with you what they are, okay? And then I want to get your comments on how you've applied each of these to your business and your practice. So element number one is clarity, and clarity as it applies to your message and as it applies to your audience. Element number two is a strategy of preeminence and being the best in your field. Element Uh number three is finding and working with the right mentors. And element number four is finding and working with the right peers and peer groups. So I'll walk you through each of these again, and I'd really like to hear about how you've been applying these inside of your business and your practice. So number one is clarity as it applies to your message and to your target audience, your target market. Okay, well, in looking at the priorities of things that we do, uh, I consider things to have five levels of priority, starting from the top. The, the most priority, the highest priority are vital. Then after that, things are important. Then after that, things are useful. Then after that, things are ineffective. And then after that, things are undermining. So I got very, very clear at some point that there is so much to do and that I was wasting so much of my time and my effort at the level of doing things that were useful and ineffective, that I just needed to stop and look and say, reprioritize and find out what's vital, what's important, what's useful. And I created a rule for myself that all there was to do was to do the vitals. When you get to a point where you're looking at your behaviors and your actions and you are restricting them to doing nothing but that which is vital, things get real simple in terms of the context of them. It's called this is what's going to forward life. This is what's going to bring vitality and energy to whatever and wherever you are. So I have a rule. And my rule is do only the vitals. Don't worry about the importance and don't do the usefuls because you're wasting your time and you get caught up in useful and ineffective. But do only the vitals. And as you check those off or take them off, uh, by natural volition, I guess, or by natural action, organically, the importance rise up to the level of being vital and you always have things to do. But the truth is, in order to bring life and bring aliveness to whatever it is that we are engaged with, 
we can only do that if we are engaged in that which is vital. If we're engaged in anything lesser than that, uh, it might be nice, and it might move the rock up the hill a little bit, but it doesn't bring aliveness. So stick to that which brings aliveness to whatever the situation is. That's that's what I got clear about. So uh, I, uh, in terms of clarity, clarity is vital. And it is vital that you can kind of reduce it to, in my case, my hack on that is, what would an intelligent 12-year-old think about X and then uh, attend to that? Because I think the most, actually, the smartest people, most effective people in a certain sense on the planet are bright 12-year-olds. That's fascinating. So how have you applied that clarity to selecting the right audiences for you to work with, the right target markets? I've suffered over this for years because I want to make what I have, uh, if it's useful, I want to make it available to anybody, everybody. But at a certain point, and it wasn't all that long ago, I became involved uh, leading and being on faculty at leadership academies around the world. And the leadership academies are located in the Middle East, in Central Asia, in Southeast Asia, and in Moscow. At a certain point, what got presented to me were people who were earmarked for extreme responsibility of leadership in their next, whatever their next iteration was. And it turned out that they were age 27 to 40. I didn't set that. But as I began to kind of become involved with that, I began to realize that's exactly who I want to work with. I want to work with people who are hungry for what is next and who uh, want to do what was once Uh, There's a story about Michael Jordan when he came back into the NBA on what was called the Second Coming. He was interviewed by Roy Firestone, and Roy Firestone said, why are you coming back? Because you've got everything. And he said, I want to work on the holes in my game. And that really struck me, that the people who are at the age of 27 to 40 generally are well-educated, highly incentivized, they're launched into their life and everything, but they realize that the next thing for them is authentic, true leadership. And by stepping into that leadership, they need to be working hard, not on the management stuff particularly, but on the leadership distinctions. Those are the holes in their game. And I thought, you know what? That's a place where I think I could provide something is, is, is just being someone there. And it's not exactly, you know, it's, there's nothing particularly altruistic about it. Uh, once, once I realized this, I realized this is a perfect fit for me. And one of the reasons is, is because these are the leaders of tomorrow. And I want to make friends with the leaders of tomorrow. I don't want to bust my pick on people who've already figured it out and got it all, you know, got the, the, the T-shirt and the mug and, and know everything there is to know uh, or uh, in the sweet spot of their career. I really don't have a lot to uh, either show them or if I do, uh, it's going to be very disruptive to everything they've ever learned. So let me mold people 
let me kind of work with people who are engaged in what's next for me and for the people around me. Train them to leadership, become good friends with them now, so that by the time they step into the place of leadership, we will be old friends and I can continue to serve them. So that's my, my demographic is age 27 to around 40 of people who are highly incentivized. And I keep getting presented with these cohorts of people in that demographic that are maybe they've just been elected to parliament in their country. It happens all the time. Or maybe they're going to be running, you know, a large business entity or they are up for being executive director of some kind of NGO. Maybe they're working for UNESCO or somewhere like that. So I'm at the people who are on the threshold of the sweet spot of their life and their career. And what that's what I want to do. I want to support them and give them leadership principles so that they can put that together with the business principles they already know, actually far better than I, and uh, be successful at what they're doing, which in many cases is lifting up, you know, literally putting their country on their shoulders and lifting it up in their generation. That's fantastic. So the next pillar is a strategy of preeminence and being the best in your field. So John, I'm especially curious about your answer to this because for me, the answer is pretty obvious, but I want to know how you've utilized this strategy to lift up your uh, positioning in the marketplace and to lift up your business and your practice. Well, I don't know that I'm going to be uh, really of use in this, but but I'm going to tell you the truth here. Mm -hmm. Uh, When I was 19 years old uh, and uh, one... Uh, a number of national championships was ranked in the world as a dancer. I got a taste of what it was to be operating at that kind of blue ribbon level, that kind of gold medal level. And I've never, ever, ever, no matter what it is, been interested in doing anything other than operating at the highest possible level. So I take a look at what I, whatever it is I'm engaged with and it's challenging me and it's calling me forward. Just that seems to be enough because uh, I'm kind of embarrassed to say I've never had a marketing plan. I've never had, I have, I have tons and tons and tons and tons of wonderful, wonderful friends who say, John, you need to brand yourself and you need to market yourself and you need to do this and you need to do that. And I go, yeah, you're right, but I don't do it. Uh, I noticed that I just don't do it. (laughs) So so, uh, it's almost, if you looked at it, you could say it's almost an accidental. The only thing is uh, I somehow have been blessed to Uh, have the kinds of relationships with people who are serious, who have seen me as useful for them. You see, ultimately, if you take everything away, Nikki, I'm a ballroom dancer. And ballroom dancing is about something that everybody thinks they know about and no one knows about at all and and we really suck at, which is partnership. Mm, we are that's weak. brilliant. Wow, I never thought of that. Yeah, we we know how to dominate other people 
and call it a partnership. We call it, well, I'm the senior partner and they're the junior partner or whatever. We know how to set up master-slave kind of relationships. We know how to set up what I call stage three and stage two relationships. We know how to be the uh, zero-sum game winner and hate it when we're the zero-sum game loser. But we do not know how to partner. And there's something really, really peculiar that goes on in the world of ballroom dancing. And I'll, I'll say a word or two about it. In ballroom dancing, the man leads and the woman follows. And the man has a job. And his job is to uh, lead the woman and uh, lead the figures and lead the dance and make the decisions, make all the traffic decisions and so on like that, and show her off. She is the object of beauty. She is almost as though uh, she's a flower and you are framing her and showing her and she is doing what she does. What she does is very difficult and very unique to her, which is called make it look spectacular, make it look pretty. What the man does is what he does is he actually shows her and frames her. This is why the men all wear black and the women wear beautiful dresses. Now, here's the, here's the peculiar thing. I lead, she follows. But the way the human body is constructed, the way your elbows are hinged and your knees are hinged and your hips are hinged and everything, the only place where you have power is when you're moving forward. When you're moving sideways, you're kind of drifting. And when you're moving backwards, you're floating. Now, one half of everything that you do when you're ballroom dancing is going forward and the other half is going backwards. That means that there is a shifting of the power. And at a point where you're going backwards and the woman is going forward, she is providing the power. She's still following. You're still leading but she's actually the one who's stepping on the gas because you have no power to go backwards. And in order to balance the look of your dance, you have to be as effective going forward as you're going backwards. So partnering has to do with that very subtle and invisible and seamless interchange of where the power is being applied and who's applying it, even though you are both engaged in doing your job, me leading, her following, us dancing. And it's all about our relationship to three things. It's the man, it's the woman, it's the music. And the music is the context for whatever the dance is. If it is something that's slow and poetic and whatever else like that, you do that kind of thing, but the woman is driving every time you turn it around and you're going backwards, which is half of the time. Now, I don't know if this makes any sense to anybody who is not a ballroom dancer, but I just want you to get that there is a give and take in terms of power and who's pressing the power that has something to do with that they are the person who is in the position to apply the power. And if you look at ballroom dancers who are not good at it, uh, what you see is when the man starts going backwards, he starts dragging the woman along rather than she's doing providing the power and driving it. So it's a little bit of an abstract concept unless you dance. 
But uh, once you start uh, uh, seeing that you can only apply the power when you're going forward, and there's a lesson in this for leadership, and then there's a time where it's appropriate for the leader to drift and have the people be applying the power even though you're continuing to lead them, if this makes any sense at all. It totally does. I mean, it's a it's a, a wonderful metaphor for leadership and through dance. I mean, that's uh, what I like about it is the it is abstract, but yet we can learn so much from what's actually happening in nature and around us and in our environment. You've done so many things, and I think your superpower really is that you've gone and looked at business and leadership and culture from the perspective of someone who wasn't indoctrinated in that education or academic space. And so I'm curious who you would say, because one of the other pillars is mentors, putting yourself and being around the right mentors. Who have been your mentors? Okay, well, wow, thank you, because it's exactly so. You know, it's it's no accident that basically what I do is consult. I go in and I come out uh, because I'm not part of any particular system uh, and never have been and never wanted to be. Uh, so in terms of teachers and mentors, if I go back to when I was a kid, you know, we take as a, a given my mother and father. Uh, my my first teacher was a guy named Joseph Vanderpool, J.H. Vanderpool. And Van was a guy who was not an expert, but just loved kids. And he was able to be with kids in such a way that he could he would see the best in them, and then he would provide an environment for them to be great in. Before Van met me, uh, he met five young men in the eighth grade in Denver, Colorado, uh, who uh, he just thought were great kids with great potential. And they liked to play basketball. And he got them their coaching. And he got them in the right schools. And they won four state championships just because of what this man provided. Now, a few years later, he came along and he ran into me and my sister. And we pulled him into a place uh, where there were about 16 or 20 couples uh, who are all our age, 13 or 14 years old. And what we like to do is get together and social dance. But we were competitive. And he found out about that. And he started bringing in teachers for us to train us to be effective as competitors in ballroom dancing, ultimately bringing in a person who was ranked third in the world to be our, our teacher and our coach. So Van was, was the first one. He was really a great one. A second one was a, was a history teacher that I had in high school named Thord Nielsen. What a brilliant man. He taught without teaching. He provided an environment for us to learn, and he pulled together about 20 really interested people, and he worked with us and taught with us and created conversations on history. I will never forget on day one uh, in September of our class, he stood up and he said, I'm going to tell you what your final exam is going to be on in May. And he wrote the word Japan on the board. And he said, that's what it's going to be. And you're going to be filling out these blue books, just like you will do when you go on to college later on. So that was it. That was the last 
reference that uh, uh, Mr. Nielsen made to Japan for the entire year, except in some sort of historical reference from time to time. And we looked at 20th century history. I ended up writing a paper on the Japanese tea ceremony. This guy taught you how to think. So that was the second one. And then in terms of the big deal later on in my life, I had numerous people who helped me, uh, you know, move from one place to the next. But I would say that the most critical was a fellow named Jerome Downs. And Jerome Downs had a position called Forum Leader. He, he led the Landmark Forum, which was uh, uh, a, a, a place where I was volunteering a lot. And he took an interest in me and said, I think you could lead seminars uh, for Landmark Education. I was not at all interested but he mentored me and developed such a rich relationship with me, and I admired the man so much that I put myself into about a two-and-a-half-year training program to learn how to lead the programs, and I led them for uh, a number of years. I think it was about 14 or 15 years, and did that up until the year 2000, at which point I moved over into the environment of uh, the University of Southern California and the business environment. All of them have passed away. All of them, uh, those three guys, uh, are definitely the three great teachers that I ever had. And all of them were generalists, and all of them were people who only the only thing that happened was they saw talent or potential ability in young people and they dedicated their life to bringing that out of these young people and i was just blessed to be around them so john you also had a lot of great peers you've worked with dave logan you and dave logan wrote tribal leadership which is yes. a, a phenomenal international bestseller number one best-selling book in business Yes. Uh, on the New York Times. And this has allowed you a platform to deliver your expertise in the form of speeches, in the form of programs that you've facilitated and delivered. And that's the power of thought leadership, leverage. Yes. So what made this possible for you, this ability to leverage? I think this is a nice way to kind of wrap everything you've set up in a nice little package with a bow on top. Well, thank you. Yeah, well, uh, I will say that uh, I had no idea about how it all worked. And uh, Dave is a really, really smart guy. And he understood, uh, he under, kind of understood the politics of things, because I don't. And uh, he mentioned to me earlier, I said, when we came together, I said to him, uh, what I'd like to have is a think tank and uh, I said a couple of things, but think tank was kind of what it was. And he uh, said, you know, what we've got to do is write a book. And he was absolutely right. So we wrote a book. Uh, the first one was Coaching Revolution. This was one where in our conversation, I, was, I had been coaching for a long time over at Landmark. And I saw this as something that was a coming thing in the business milieu. And so... Uh, he and I wrote the book together, had a lot of fun with it. And what it did is it predicted the uh, explosion of uh, executive coaching and coaching in the business milieu. Uh, to tell you the truth, it was not my idea. I never really thought I was a dancer. I didn't think of myself as someone who wrote. 
uh, or even or even spoke well. But Dave's idea was let's write a book and that will at least be something that we can leave behind. Well, it turned out to be probably the key element that has supported me, uh, you know, throughout my career. About six years ago, Dave and I separated our business, and he is still doing Culture Sync in California, and I moved back to New Mexico to be with my family. But the through line on all of this has been that I have a book out there, and it's a book that is in relationship with Dave. But, uh, but the thing that I brought to it was I'm just a guy who kind of looks at things and sees models kind of like a choreographer can look at a bunch of dancers and listen to some music and see form and structure. That's what I, it turns out I have a knack for seeing and making models. And because of that, plus the kind of uh, training that I had of looking at things through the lens of distinctions and context, we were able to capture kind of my models, my tools, and my distinctions in such a way that when you round them out with a few case studies and, a, and best practices, stories, anecdotal stories, and so on like that, you end up with a few tools that people find useful. So that's what I do. I mean, even to this day, I, I'm always, you know, having this kind of, I'm, I'm a guy who thinks that there's only three distinctions. And the three distinctions are, duh, <laughs> aha. <laughs> And wow. And if something is a duh, aha, or wow, and I can run it by a group of young, bright 12 year olds, which is my beta testing group is 12 year olds, then uh, I know I'm on to something. And then it's a matter of just developing it out and developing it out. Dave has a great ability to see things that are useful and things that will be timely and so on, like that. And so he. Uh, he addresses that or, and addressed that part of it, but, uh, and and I addressed the part of what are the tools, what are the distinctions, what are the, you know, what is that part of it that that is, uh, in, I guess, the hacks you might say. That's awesome. You know, I, I've read Tribal Leadership, and it's a fantastic book. It, it really changed my thinking. It's original thought leadership. If you're listening to this podcast and you haven't read it, do yourself a favor, pick up a copy of the book. Heck, pick up five copies of it and give it to your friends and colleagues and have them read it. And if you're interested in John's work and consuming John's thought leadership, we're going to have his website. We're going to have a way for you to connect with him in the show notes. John, it's really fantastic that you've been on the show. Thank you so much for being here. And again, and again, if you're listening to this and you're serious and you have a message that you think would resonate in the marketplace and you want to find out what that message is worth in terms of commercializing it, let's jump on a call and find out if you could be the John King of your market niche. Do you believe in your message enough for you to silence those chattering monkeys in your head that want to steal your dream away from you? Because wow. if you do... You need to jump on a call with us. Go to ecircleacademy.com forward slash appointment 
and let's see if you can be the John King of your niche. John, thank you so much for being on the show. It was a real honor to have you on. My honor. I just want to say one thing. First of all, thank you, Michael. Thank you, Nikki. Uh, Another thing is, uh, and this will give you amazing support to the thing called, uh, you know, (laughs) marketing is not my thing. I actually don't have a website. Now, I know that that's weird, (laughs) but what I've got is I've got an email, and the email is johnkingpartners at gmail.com, johnkingpartners at gmail.com, and I'll just say a word or two about that. A partner to me is not a business relationship. A partner to me is someone who has touched me or I've touched them, and it's made a difference. Mm -hmm. So I feel that potentially everyone is a partner and so I, that's my email address. And if you want to get a hold of me, that's a good place to go and find me. Awesome. I love it. Thank you, John. Thanks again, thank John. You, thank you. Thank you, guys. You guys take care. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That wraps another episode of the Thought Leader Revolution. To learn more about today's wonderful guest and as well to get an understanding of what your thought leadership is and what it may be worth in the marketplace, please jump on a call with us at ecircleacademy.com forward slash appointment. Until next time, goodbye.